Welcome to the podcast. I'm Aiden Walker. And I'm Blake Peterson. What are we talking about today, Blake? Um, we're talking about the original Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott, and starring Harrison Ford. From 1982. From 1982. We watched the director's cut, one of the thousands of cuts, apparently. I thought there was literally just like the final cut directors, but there's like nine. It was very hard to figure yeah, out which one we, to watch. Yeah, we ended up getting our wires crossed. I ended up watching the final cut, and you ended up watching the director's cut. The train. But that's okay, because we looked it up online, and they're pretty much the same. They just reorganize a couple frames in a couple places. Yeah. For the most part, it seems like they're similar. It's fine. It's fine. Who will care? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> so Blade Runner, uh, we're covering this right now because... There's going to be a new Blade Runner movie in about a week. Um, is it coming out on Friday? Is it Friday? It I might be Friday. So. The new Blade Runner 2049 starring mm. Ryan Gosling. Love Ryan. I Rai also Rai. love Rai Rai is going to be in theaters. So we we decided we'd watch the original to get up to speed. Well, it was getting yeah. up for to speed for me, but you hadn't seen it before, I've had never you? seen it. I've always kind of avoided it. I think I have like this weird thing where I just don't want to watch the classics because I'm worried like, what if I don't like it? So I think this made me finally watch it. So that was nice. I think that classics anxiety is totally a real thing. It's why I still haven't seen The Godfather. I watched that when I was like 13. I've never watched it since, which I feel like I should rewatch it because, you know, I think I'd react to it a little bit differently. I'm I'm sure I would react to it in some way. I don't know what that way is, but... Hopefully. I thought it was pretty good when I was 13, so I can't imagine it got worse. No, but I don't even want to like say the classics I haven't seen because it would just be like I'd seem like yeah. a fake fan of movies. Yeah. almost. <laughs> it's too hard. It is. It's yeah. too hard. It's very hard. So for you, when was the first time you watched Blade Runner? Well, and what I, was your first impression? I had been told to watch it about a hundred times by everybody, and then the, I watched it in such a lame way. Like <laughs> I ended up seeing it for the first time in a language arts class in high school, my senior year of high school. I saw it, and they showed us the theatrical cut, which oh, no. I was like, I was like, yeah, I could get into this. And then all my friends who had seen it were like, no, Aiden. <laughs> The theatrical cut is garbage. And I was like, I thought it was cool. And they were like, no, 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 no. No, you're wrong. Really? Yeah. So anyway, I, I ended up saw, seeing the uh, the director's cut. I don't know, the final cut, like two years ago, I think. And then last night I watched it again. And uh, I think this movie gets crazier every time you watch it, to be frank. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious about, I mean, I know that like the theatrical cut is kind of, from what I've heard, it's a little more simplistic, more of just kind of an action movie. I don't know. Like, how did what did you think of it when you saw it? Um, they kind of hold your hand a little bit more in the theatrical mm. cut. There's a lot of voiceover from Harrison Ford where he'll be in a place and he'll there'll just be his voice talking. And he's like, yeah, I'm oh, walking no. through the city and it's dark and rainy. Oh, sounds like it's time to not watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to um, stick with the director's cut (laughs) yeah yeah it's yeah it it had been a little while so it was i mean i definitely noticed new things this time that i hadn't seen but before we get going you haven't seen it you haven't seen it before (laughs) i mean we are going but you haven't (laughs) seen it before i want to get from you what was your expectation of this movie going in and then what what was your reality of watching it what was your experience with it i think weirdly my biggest expectation i wasn't even because i know like it's very thematically heavy like there's even like a wikipedia page just dedicated to all the themes it touches on but weirdly like i wasn't going in like oh i'm gonna watch this very cerebral movie i was kind of going in with this expectation that i would be immersed in this futuristic world with just this great set design really just like a very visually ambitious sci-fi movie so when i watched that i was surprised to find like the it's very visually ambitious, but it's not 
like welcoming in a way that like the fifth element or like Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets is, it definitely feels more like you kind of don't want to explore this world because it's so crowded and kind of miserable. It's always raining. And so to me, it it kind of was the thematics that stuck out more than the even though the visuals are amazing and super cool. I kind of left with it really. It almost felt like an everything is pointless kind of vibe toward the end. So which I didn't really expect. I liked it. I, it's not really what I expected, I guess. I wish I could have the experience of sitting down and watching this film just purely to fall into it and get mm. kind of lost in it. But since my first introduction to it was in a class where we were supposed to be reading it and trying to find every little detail in it, I cannot watch it without doing that. I mean, not that that's necessarily a bad thing. What What was your reading at the end? Like, what did you think of the character of Deckard and more of the philosophical side of this movie. Weirdly to me, I think when I watched it, I was kind of watching it almost not really philosophically until the end because I feel like for most of it, I just kind of thought of it as this kind of basic action movie. I didn't really find the plot super interesting just because it is kind of this hunt for these like quote unquote villains kind of. But then the end, I feel like this is so early to talk about the ending, um, but when Deckard and kind of the main villain of this movie, played by Rutger Hauer, is that how you say yeah, it? The, yeah, Rutger Hauer. The the character's name is Roy Batty. Roy, gotcha. Does, does it go by Roy or like Batty in the movie? Uh, it Batty? He goes by, I think he goes by Roy. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure they um, call him Roy. Yeah, but for me, it didn't really hit home until there's kind of the ending showdown and then like Roy kind of decides to save Deckard's life and has this monologue about... Your memories will be lost like tears in the rain. Did I yeah. write that? Yeah, that's like it. That. Oh, really? Well, I can't believe I remembered it. But after that, and he kind of made that point of like, I want to save your life because ultimately people are going to forget about me. So I just want someone to remember me kind of. And then all of a sudden there was this whole kind of like, maybe this plot's uninteresting because everything's pointless and eventually all of this will be forgotten. And the movie is about, it is a future where like the entire past has kind of been completely disintegrated. Everything's been kind of skyscrapers were super super high because there's all this progress and all this change and so it feels like a movie where life is kind of meaningless and so you have to make the most of it in a way but i don't know i didn't didn't really read that until like the very end i don't feel like while i was watching it i was thinking about all these other things i i get i get so lost in the visuals of the movie uh, that when i when i try to pay attention to what the people are saying and what they're (laughs) talking about i was happy that this was the third time i had seen it because i was able to to tune in more to what people were talking about. And there's a line at one point, I think they ask JF they ask JF Sebastian the toy maker, like why are you still here? And they're not referring to here as in why are you still here in this old decrepit building building creepy androids to walk around. They're asking him why are you still on earth? All of the rich people live off world Mm -hmm. so when you see you know there's the the little people in the streets who are trying to scavenge deckard's car it's because they don't have the money to leave they're they're poor that's crazy and it is funny because i think yeah a lot of these kind of sci-fi movies that are similar with this visual ambition they really try to play up kind of this like look at this brand new world that's super cool you get lost in but i feel like blade runner you don't want to be in that world at all like it seems miserable and it makes you kind of nervous for this bleak future where like maybe eventually things will get that way where like prog- there's such progress made that they're just the huge like class gap is so big that it becomes kind of this almost apocalyptic setting it's definitely yeah not... i i have a hard time labeling this setting of yeah. 2019 los mm-hmm. angeles as dystopian <laughs> though 
Yeah, it's de- you know, I wouldn't it, say it's dystopian. I think it has the same general thing where it's kind of this irreversible, awful situation, I guess. You know, that kind of matches with dystopian. is like, this is how it is, and it's not going to recover. The big question for you that I have to ask mm. is, do you think that Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, is a replicant? I feel like, I mean, I know, like, Ridley Scott later, like, he said that he thinks that he's a replicant, but I didn't That's really... the thing, because Ridley Scott has said both in interviews. That's true. People have like... asked him, and they've been like, is he a replicant? And he's like, no, he's not a replicant. There's no way he's a replicant. <laughs> yeah. And I ask him again, and he's like, yeah, he could be. <laughs> I feel like the most recent one was he said he could be, so I feel like that's it. I don't really... I didn't really feel like he was, but I, I mean, they're like, I guess the signs, like I had read that because like his apartment is covered in photographs, which is something that replicants do because they want to tie themselves to this kind of imaginary past. Like that's kind of a sign. And also how he kind of is trying to search for his humanity in a way that replicants do. I think there are a lot of signs, but I never really thought of him like that, I guess. I just kind of thought of him as, I don't know. I almost kept imagining him as like kind of this young person who kind of just got into this job incidentally everything about him has been kind of used up by being this bounty hunter figure. And so this particular job was kind of making him rethink his humanity. So I never really thought of him as a replicant, more just a person, I don't want to say in the midst of like an existential crisis, but just someone I think, who... I think he could be. I think that's could a... Be. I mean, yeah. when, I, when I first saw this, there was no sign that there was going to be a sequel, right? Yeah, no sequel. But now there is, and yeah. we know that replicants have that four-year lifespan, but clearly in the trailers for this new movie... Harrison Ford is old. That's true. <laughs> um, so he can be. So, right. But at the time, before there was any indication that there would be more to the story, he definitely could have been. But yeah. now that there is going to be a continuation, I, for me, I think the important reading of this film is that it's not really important whether he's a replicant or not, but it's important that he's struggling with the idea that he could be. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of textual evidence in this film for him definitely being a replicant. What I noticed in my second watching, which... The, you know, the first time I watched it, I wasn't really thinking about it. I wasn't like, yeah, he's a replicant or no, he isn't. And they changed the ending in the theatrical cut. Oh, really? And at the end of the theatrical cut, he and Rachel, the replicant, who's super, super good at being a replicant, yeah. they run away. I mean, they do that at the end of the final cut, but there's like an extended scene of them leaving through a forest or something. Oh. And I don't think there's as much time spent lingering on the origami unicorn. In fact, I don't know if the unicorn scene where he's dreaming and he sees the unicorn is even in the theatrical cut. I could be totally wrong. It might be there. Oh, really? Yeah. But I don't remember seeing that until the second time I watched the movie. Yeah. What I noticed in my second watch that I was looking for this time, but I must have been just looking at Rachel during the scene, when they're in the apartment and she plays the piano, he's sitting next to her and he gets up and he walks away around her and he looks kind of towards the camera and his eyes do that same thing that the owl does and all the other replicants do where they turn kind of that white orange in the pupil. Oh, wow, I didn't even notice that. Um, They do that at one point. I I don't know. I noticed things (laughs) this time around that I hadn't noticed before uh, that made me think, yeah, this guy's really in tune with kind of the machinery that's about in the city when he goes into the house to find the snake scale that's in the bathroom, in the bathtub. Uh, The first thing that he does when he enters the room is he turns to his right. It's kind of dark. There's a flickering neon tube light that's flickering green. And the first thing he does, he walks in, and he has seemingly the magic touch. He taps on the light two times, and it starts working again. He doesn't fiddle with the light switch or anything. just walks in, boop, and it starts working again. This seemingly symbiotic relationship with technology. And then another thing that I noticed, which might have just been there to be visually cool, (laughs) but I thought it might have a little more to say, was when he is going back up to his apartment, 
it's still pretty early in the film. He gets on and into the elevator, and the elevator asks him, state your name and floor number, and he's like, Deckard 97. And then as he's going up, there's a shot of his face, and you just see the green reflection of the panel that shows the floor numbers. So there's this green light of numbers going up his face. And I don't know, it just seemed like a projection of a machine onto a person yeah, to me. Those are all good. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I watched it so much more passively. Like, I didn't notice any of these things. And I was just like, wow, this looks really cool. And then toward the end, we'll kind of pick up those things. I kind of want to watch it again now just to kind of notice those things. But it does make you wonder, yeah, because the new movie Harrison Ford is in it. So, it, like, I don't, it makes you, like, is it, you know, the same character? Or maybe is it a different character? Because now it kind of, I'm not so sure. Did they, like, state that it's Deckard in the trailers? I haven't watched the trailers at all. Yeah, and they, there's, so where I went and saw the movie last night, I went to the Cinerama downtown in Seattle, and they're just doing a showing of it. And before they showed the movie, they showed a trailer for 2049, um, and there's a scene where Harrison Ford is talking to Ryan Gosling, and he's like, I used to have your job. <laughs> and then they're, like, Ryan Gosling asks him something, and he says, what did we do? Like, we ran away. Like, we escaped. So, okay. so like, I, I would say definitely the same. Also, yeah. totally a tangent. Harrison Ford's oh, costume in the new one is just a gray T-shirt. Have you seen? It. He's just wearing like a like an American apparel green like gray <laughs> T-shirt. It's fantastic. I think that's a good look. For he him, looks real honestly. cozy. He looks very comfortable. <laughs> which I'm gonna bring the tangent around now. Set oh, design. Excited. Yeah. What I love about this movie, which I didn't love the first time I watched it, but now I really do appreciate it is that there's so many locations that look super different in this movie. Yeah. It does have a unified aesthetic throughout of that dark kind of noir. You're looking through blinds. There's neon. Each location has a really distinct feeling. When they go to the police chief's office, it feels kind of Americana, Southern, almost decor. There's the wooden cabinets. And then there's also Deckard's apartment, which I think may be the coziest location ever depicted in a movie. If I could live in Deckard's apartment, I would definitely live there. That place looks so comfortable. <laughs> I never, I feel like nothing was comfortable to me. I was so just like, this place is so miserable. I gotta get oh, out. There's a great like... shot after he he gets back. It's, it's somewhere in the beginning of the movie. The timeline of this movie gets super confused in my head because it's so, so visual and they end up in so many different places. Yeah. It's kind of hard to keep straight, but there's a point at which he's in his apartment and he's drinking some whiskey out of one of those big old glasses and he's just got a blanket over his shoulders. And he's just like looking out at the city, just kind of swirling it around. Pretty it's, comfortable. It's got, a, it's got that cozy aesthetic, man. Yeah. No, I do love, too, talking about set design, just the look of the film. I really like, too, they use a lot of map paintings in kind of the overall structure of the city. I think a lot of sci-fi movies suffer from it's very obvious. Like, this is computer animated. Like, this is not real. But because they use map paintings, it feels a lot more tangible. You don't... You, you feel a little more immersed because it feels so much more plausible. And super good miniatures. Super good miniatures. The really big, like the pyramids in the middle of the city are mm. definitely miniatures, but yeah. they look great. I think the fact is, I mean, even with movies who, that do use miniatures or map paintings, even though it probably does take more work, I think ultimately it, those don't really age. Even if they do, like it's obvious that they special effects improve over the years. Like there's just something still so magical about seeing the work put into those kinds of things and how they kind of play an overall effect. What did you think of Sean Young's performance in this? She was good. I, you know, she is meant to be a replicant. So yeah. she's supposed to be not a human. She's supposed to be able to fool you that she is a human. Yeah. And they do a pretty good job of this. She is kind of static and robotic, kind of in the way that she, definitely in the way that she moves with the big shoulder pads and she walks so straight and 
her top half barely moves when she walks. They do a good job of telling the audience this person is not a human. But then she's really emotional and she reacts and she looks scared and she is sad and does all kinds of really human things. What did you think? Of her? Yeah, I, I really loved her performance because I think it is such a delicate performance because she is basically playing this robot, but it definitely feels like a robot playing a human. Like she, It's such a hard performance because you, I mean, one wrong stepping, you're playing this part all wrong. But I really like how when she, kind of the beginning stages, she feels more robotic. She is perfectly, just the way she walks and is dressed. It's all very immaculate. But then as the movie progresses, she starts to look more and more human. Like, there's like one point where after she cries, like her mascara is all stained. And then later on, when she kind of is becoming more human, she lets down her hair. And I really like the transition between, she always does kind of have that robotic edge. But I like how you can still, you can feel that human arc changing also i love the sounds of those chairs yeah apologies there are people upstairs who are having some kind of desk moving doing? party i don't it's maybe it's a club and there's not enough space Jeez, or i mean come on guys it's 11 30 in the morning I mean, we can relax. chill out down there i would hope there, so rather some riding musical chairs <laughs> <laughs> i mean let's talk about our star yeah dad harrison harrison ford <laughs> yeah. is that your dad <laughs> well Did not my dad him? but he is a dad <laughs> oh for sure for certain for sure. What do you think? Uh, what do you think of old? Well, no, I don't want to say old Ford. Young Ford in this movie. <laughs> I really, I like his performance. I think it fits really well. I think Harrison Ford with me, I've always kind of been skeptical about him, kind of in the same way I'm like Clint Eastwood. They both have this very kind of stoic performance. Like I feel like they're kind of doing the same performance over and over, even though he, you know, has shown obviously a little more depth in other movies. But I think here it's kind of a similar to like a John Wayne feel. He, I think he's so used to being kind of this emotionally barren person and now he's kind of having this weird mix maybe, of Maybe not emotionally like. barren, but like emotionally seclusive. I'd say seclusive, yeah. He's also just been, I think, kind of used to suppressing his emotions. And then in this movie, they're kind of coming out a little bit more and he's kind of realizing things, TM. Um, and so I think that's definitely interesting to see the kind of this john wayne thing but it's also kind of getting soft around the edges as it goes on and he's kind of revealing this humanity but i think he's very well cast and i know i had read that before he was cast they had like considered robert mitchum they wanted someone who was a little bit older and more grizzled which that would have been very interesting i would have really i'm liked having to see that. i'm having a brain moment robert mitchum is is the older guy he's in the the friends of eddie coyle right that's yes, robert mitchum that's him. Yeah. yeah okay no he's great that would be a It'd be really be, interesting. I can't, I mean, I can't picture it. But Really? I feel like, I definitely feel a little more noir because he's such a yeah. film noir staple. But I really like that because he is definitely an actor, I think, who is really good at playing these kinds of roles where it's just someone who maybe has had this long, kind of destructive career, you know, on their emotional stance. And then later, because that was like in the earlier stages, and I think after that they considered like Jack Nicholson and more... Kind of conventional leading, I don't want to call it Jack Nicholson conventional, but just kind of the general leading men of the time. But I think Harrison Ford works very well for this role. I I like him, but <laughs> that's because I like Harrison Ford a lot. Yeah. I, I think that Harrison Ford has the unique ability to look like he's having a really difficult time seeing something. <laughs> when he's climbing up off of the building at the end when he's having the fight with the leader of the replicants he's getting all the rain in his eyes and he can't see and he's just like he blinks so intensely oh, uh, it's a it's the same face and the same look he makes in return of the jedi when he's trying to blink <laughs> off the carbonite sickness he's like i can't see leia is it just yeah. like one of his fun little ticks that he threw in yeah. like let me just blink very aggressively i know harrison ford didn't have a great time filming it like i think he didn't like that 
He also didn't really get along with Ridley Scott. Really? So I wonder if that played it. Because I think Ridley Scott had kind of wanted... I guess they had this big disagreement over, like, he thought that Deckard was a replicant and Harrison Ford didn't, and so they had all these disagreements about the character, basically. See, I think that's so great, though. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it would be terrible to work on a set and be the leading actor and not get along with the director. Yeah. But at the same time, that struggle personified is the core theme of this movie. Yeah. So it's good that that disagreement happened. Cause, that's really good. I mean, it's ambiguous. Well, that's I cool. think disagreements between director and star oftentimes can kind of make an interesting movie. And I think it plays into the movie kind of that frustration for sure. I mean, Harrison Ford's also a good actor, so he can just convey kind of his frustration well in the movie. But I think, I wonder if that tapped in at all. Probably did. I wonder if he was also frustrated because of the small amount of dialogue in this film. Yeah. I almost said earlier that this movie has a lot of silence, and that's wrong. This yeah. movie has very little silence. It has very little dialogue, but there's always some kind of sound yeah. to fill in the spaces, some kind of electronic or... Yeah, and I don't feel like it has to really have a lot of dialogue either. I think just what it has, I think because it is so thematically heavy, you don't necessarily have to override everything. I think you can just kind of take a lot of it away and interpret it the way you want to, which I think is a good touch. I think what I was trying to say was that I think Harrison Ford, there's a possibility, this is conjecture, yeah. he may have been frustrated by the small amount of dialogue in the film mm -hmm. and... He, I, I feel like Harrison Ford's the kind of guy who likes to throw in kind of some of his own lines, kind of ad-lib it a little bit. Oh, yeah, he seems kind of like a diva to me. I don't know if that's correct. <laughs> but I feel like you see him in interviews and he's just so, he's so grumpy Yeah, he's. I, I also know I that he like, really does struggle with social anxiety. Uh, and I that really when, he, so. when he interviews, it's stressful. So I think that might be part of it. So yeah. I, I tend to want to give him a little more credence. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that he's like a very, very nice person yeah. when you know him. But, you know, just being in the limelight and being as big of a star as he is. Did you ever it see? It must be stressful. Yeah. Did you ever see, this is a tangent too, but did you ever see like the one time he was on Jimmy Fallon and he like pierced Jimmy Fallon's ear on TV? It's no. Wild. You got to see it because Harrison Ford, I guess, pierced his own ears. And so. Oh, that would make sense. Jimmy Fallon was, I guess, kind of wanted him to also do it. It's interesting. <laughs> He, like, pierced his ear and then ended with, like, this behind hug. Is there, like, a better term for that besides behind hug? Uh, like, I nope. sound really stupid. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I don't that's know how to perfect. Say it. Behind hug. But, like, a, I don't even, yeah, I guess that's it. But it's I, something you should watch it. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's great. Noted. <laughs> Have you seen the pictures of Harrison Ford before he became an actor when he was a carpenter by trade? No. Oh, man. Wow. He looks good. <laughs> oh, Harrison. He's got the long hair. Long hair? Yeah, he's got long hair, and he's, like... It. Well, I mean, just imagine like Han Solo in the first Star Wars movie. He's got so kind of, well, it's like a little longer though. Oh, wait, are we talking like 70s rock or like to the shoulders? I want to say it cuts off maybe just a little bit before the shoulders. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. Great. He doesn't have a beard or anything. It's just that. If I can find the picture, I'll throw it in the description of the episode okay. so that everybody Perfect. can see it. <laughs> I'm curious. I have no idea. <laughs> I also had the good fortune because of the location where I saw this movie last night since it was Cinerama and our good friend Paul Allen with all of his money <laughs> is able to acquire props from films oh, to Paul. throw in the lobby so you can see. So there's costumes from the movie that were really? up front. So got to see J.F. Sebastian's strange coat that he wears that's oh, got all frick. the stripes on it was there. And then Rachel's suit with the really big shoulders was also out front. Oh, cool. Which it seems like she is smaller. She may be kind of short. She looks really big in this movie. She looks very tall yeah. and imposing. But I think in real life, and, you know, smoke and mirrors, camera tricks. Yeah. She's pretty small. Well, that's always how it is. Like, actors or even, like, musicians on a stage, they always just look bigger no matter what. Like, if you were, like, asked their height, like, you almost don't even want to say, like, an average height. Because it's like they've got to be, like, seven feet tall. They're just so so much larger than life. 
So the other thing that was there, which I just find this hilarious, <laughs> that this was also in the same room as props from Blade Runner. They had the frilly shirt from that episode of Seinfeld. Where, oh, I have love you seen that, that where they where they convince him to wear the like the pirate's shirt on TV? Yeah, that was there too. It wasn't in the same display case, but it was still in the lobby. That would have been my favorite thing. Yeah, <laughs> I should I should have taken episode. a picture of that, but But it is impressive too cuz this movie was only Ridley Scott's third movie. And this movie cuz I think his first one was more just kind of one of those small I didn't really double check. But I think it was one of those smaller directorial debuts. <laughs> Because the second movie was Alien, which is, you know, one of the greatest horror movies of all time. So Wait, did... are you, you're not saying Alien came after this, are you? Before. Okay, It was good. before. Yeah, Alien was oh, 1979. Yeah, 1979. Yeah. But he went from, like, Alien to this just back-to-back, and those are only his second and third movie. And to think that he already had this mastery of two genres, like, right off the bat, is just incredible to me. I think there's some really awesome visual similarities between Alien and this movie. And of course that would have to do, I would imagine some similar people in design were probably oh, involved sure. with both movies. Yeah. Um, thank God H.R. Geiger wasn't involved in Blade Runner because oh, it would have been a much scarier movie. Well, I already feel like this movie is already so downcast. So if like yeah. H.R. Geiger was involved, I would just be really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I remember what I was going to say. The, the visual similarities between Alien and... Blade Runner, which, you know, this was something that I would be worried doesn't help the movie hold up over time, but I think it actually lends a really strong hand to the visual aesthetic of the movie, which is that kind of what we would now call a retro-futuristic look. What what did the future look like to people in the 70s and 80s? And for then, when they were making Alien and Blade Runner, all of the technology still had the rounded screen. It was like tube TV kind of look. Yeah. Things were still on physical media. One of the first scenes in Alien, they're on the ship. I think it's the captain is using the computer, and he presses a button, and it physically prints something out. And it's supposed to be, I don't know, it's the year 21, maybe 2200 or something. Oh, and wow. they're still like, yeah, printouts, totally. <laughs> this movie, though, similar aesthetic. The same grimy, lived in. Yeah. It's not clean and fresh. Oh, well, it's nice because I, I think a lot of science fiction movies in general, they do kind of try to propose... Just a version of the future, just something that you've never seen before, basically. Like, they're just trying to present this new world. Whereas this one, I hope that we don't have these really huge skyscrapers and all this grime at the bottom someday. But it doesn't really pander to trying to visually dazzle us, necessarily. It just tries to present this depressing world as best as it can. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we are visually impressed by something that's meant to look dirty and mm -hmm. familiar. I think, I think the coolest, yeah. I mean, one of the cooler things visually about this movie that I always get tricked and I always remember when I go in and see it again is I always think after I've seen this movie, this movie takes place in Hong Kong is what I always think. This yeah. movie takes place in LA, but they spend so much time in, I think they call it Chinatown in the movie or they at least passingly refer to it as that. There's all this uh, Mandarin script on things. I believe when they're going into J.S. Sebastian's apartment, there's a movie theater I want to say is showing movies that are in Spanish. Wow. So they're they're definitely showing some different different cultural things. I, I always think, yeah, this movie probably takes place in, in Hong Kong. And I think part of that is because it looks really similar to uh, the anime, the 1990-something anime, Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. has a really similar aesthetic. Definitely. And that is old Newport City, but it looks like Hong Kong. So I'm always tricked, but Yeah, and they always alas. have like, just, like, that indelible image, too, of just, like, the, on a billboard, it's just, like, a screen of just, like, the um, Asian woman who's, like, is she blowing a kiss or something? But that's... She's, I think she's smoking. Smoke. Okay, so I'm not even close. But, like, she, you see that image over and over and over again. So I think that kind of caters to that, too. That touch, too, with all the screens, like, it's just constantly, like, an advertisement for something... 
just nonstop. And it's like these people can barely, they're all scavenging asses and you're trying to convince them to buy Coca-Cola or these cigarettes. Like, it's just, it's wild. And I think it's important to note that the advertising is coming from the floating airship mm-hmm. with the screens on it. So the advertising is coming from above and these people are living below. Yeah, just like the rich people saying, please make us richer while you just get poorer, basically. <laughs> this was in development for a long time because I think... It was so Philip K. Dick. It's based on his. Uh, oh yeah, story. we should probably say that, huh? For sure, yeah. Just develop that. This I don't know if it's a short story or a novel. It's called it's a "The novel. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep," which is a great name. I wish they kept that. <laughs> like I think a lot of people wanted to adapt it. I know Martin Scorsese in the early '70s really wanted to, which would have been interesting if he directed that. I don't really know what to expect, but it wasn't really didn't become a thing until I don't know if I wrote down the screenwriter, but the screenwriter who wrote the eventual Blade Runner when he kind of wrote it and developed it once really scott became involved in the 80s then it kind of became this big thing but it took i mean it was floating around for like 10 years basically and no one really knew exactly what to do with it which you can see why because it is such an ambitious story but i mean ultimately i think i've never read it i haven't really read any philip k dick i feel like i've seen a lot of movies adapted from his works but i mean just based on what i've seen like his work is obviously pretty hard to adapt they're all very weighty and deal with kind of these unideal futures i guess like even for most of the filming, like, Philip Dick, like, wasn't even really contacted. Like, he didn't really know what was going on, and, like, it initially heightened his distrust of Hollywood because he had already kind of not liked what they had done with his works before. But then when he had seen... He died before the movie was officially released, but what he had seen before he died, he really appreciated, and I guess even told the people behind the movie that it was pretty much exactly what he envisioned, at least visually, like, what his story was. So that's good that it was kind of the last movie that he had seen based on his own work that he really liked. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say that I haven't read any Philip K. Dick. I would no, like to read Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep now to I'm see curious. how it compares to yeah. the film. But do we want to? What if it's just so much better and, like, the movie's just nothing compared to I don't know. I mean, I feel like if it's different, there would be a, there would be reasons for it. I think yeah. it, would be, it would be easy to tell. I wonder how much of the book is more fantastical than the movie. There may be more things in it that were harder to put to screen that got yeah. omitted. Well, I'm sure there's a lot more descriptive elements that just couldn't be thrown into the movie necessarily. As most books are. We were talking about Mr. H. Ford earlier. I want to talk about a couple of the other actors. This is, I want to say, an early role for Edward J. Olmos. Mm. And he plays the interesting character. He plays Gaff, who's one of the other police agents. He walks with the cane and he folds the origami. He's slightly creepy, but also seems like he'd be a pretty good bud. You know, he seems like you could hang with him. (laughs) I love the voiceover at the end after Deckard picks up the origami unicorn. You just hear the voice of Gaff again saying... It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? That's the last line of the movie that you hear. So I, I like his performance. And I don't know. I think that he's wearing contacts that make his eyes really blue, unless that's actually how Edward James almost looks. But he looks, again, strikingly unreal. Yeah, Edward James almost has brown eyes. Um, but he looks he looks really striking yeah. in, this, in this movie. A lot of people, I feel like most people except Harrison Ford have these very distinctive features. I really like... One of the replicants, what is her name, Zahora? Oh, Zora, I think. Zora. The, the one who performs with the snakes in the yeah. nightclub. I really liked her visually. I liked the snake, too. Like, like She like said, oh, do you think I'd be working in a place like this if I could afford a real snake? And you think it's a real snake, but it's this totally synthetic creation. And she already looks pretty th- synthetic as is. So it's like funny how there's really just nothing real about her necessarily. But that entire kind of showdown between her and Deckard, where he eventually kills her. But, like, the whole thing is very joyless. I feel like in a lot of other movies, when you're kind of defeating a quote-unquote villain, it should be kind of satisfactory. But in that instance, it's not at all. And you 
you kind of feel the sense of guilt that Deckard probably also feels. He looks very shaken up after he kills very her. Very shaken up. You can tell he doesn't want to. Right, at and all. he's he's supposed to be struggling with this fact of are these people human or not? Yeah. That I'm killing. I mean, I Makes would say more. I don't know if there is more to say, but well, I feel like even if they you know aren't human necessarily they still it still is they are they're basically human they still have lives they still basically seem to have feelings and so i think even if he can't really tell like it's still it would make you feel really bad if you're doing that because you know they still have their own lives and you're just taking them away basically so i think one of the characters that i didn't really tune into as much how spooky they were until this watching was the character the police chief Bryant, who was played by M. Emmett Walsh. And he's very creepy. Yeah. They linger a little bit on his creepiness in the theatrical version. During one of the voiceovers, Harrison Ford thinks that he's the kind of man who would use the N-word to describe somebody. Um, and that's how you know, okay, well, this guy's horrible. He's not great. I was, you know, slightly creeped out by him before, but between my last watching of Blade Runner and now this watching, I saw Blood Simple for the first time. Oh. And he plays the hired assassin, the Texan, who wears the big cowboy hat and talks real slow and deliberate so i was super creeped out by this character this yeah. time around which is kind of this embodiment of i don't want to say pure evil necessarily but he is just that really frightening authority figure who really can control a lot of what you do and that's unsettling always there's there's a an exchange between him and deckard in the office at the beginning where Harrison Ford says, so I've got no choice huh? when he's being tasked to go kill these replicants. And he just goes, yeah, no choice. I hate it. He's just like one yeah, of those people Yeah, he's really who, slimy. Well, you can almost tell that he's probably being told by someone else to do it. So it's just like the classic case of just kind of following blindly. Like he can't even just think for himself. It's like, you know, this is bad. What are your final thoughts? My final thoughts. I honestly, I feel like I need to watch it again because you brought up all these little details that I totally missed in terms of the hints that Deckard might be a replicant, so I kind of want to watch it again. But I think my final thoughts is I like this movie because it is very thematically weighty, but you can just watch it as just kind of a simple sci-fi movie and just really just sit back and be dazzled by it, which I always like movies like that, which they're not forcing its intellectual ideas on you. You can just enjoy it. But I like it for that reason. I do think it is very influential sci-fi movie. You really think there's not a lot preceding it, but then, you know, later one, later sci-fi movies like, you know, Terminator or The Matrix, they all definitely take visual cues from it. But I'm definitely curious about the new one. I really want to see what I think his name's Denis Villeneuve. He's the oh, yes. French director. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> but um I'm curious to see what he comes up with cuz I haven't I've seen most of his movies. I haven't loved any of them. I feel like they're all a little bit cold. So I'm curious to see if I'll kind of have the same feeling with Blade Runner. I feel like Blade Runner itself is pretty cold. So if you have this cold director, like it's probably just going to be similar. But yeah, I'm definitely curious about it. How about you? I, I'm excited. I liked Arrival quite a bit. So I yeah, I think cold will be good. The trailers have been very visually intense. Yeah. Uh, they all those brighter. shots. Yeah, really bright. Which hopefully... A little warmer Hope, than Blade Runner. Ho well, yeah, it does look warmer than Blade Runner. Hopefully it holds up visually as a sequel so you could watch Blade Runner and then watch Blade Runner 2049 back to back and still feel like you're in the same universe. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of times where a lot of time passes between movies and then the style feels different enough that you, at least for me, I struggle to see the similarities. This is what happened during the new Twin Peaks that came out. I mean, clearly it makes sense because 25 years have gone by, but that first run of Twin Peaks, it's all warm colors and they're all wearing sweaters and it's got <laughs> a very particular aesthetic. 
and then the new one is really harsh and cold and yeah. clean and people are wearing more like fit suits and it just feels different and i struggle to say this is the same twin peaks i mean that's probably what lynch was going for but yeah you know yeah no i'm very curious to see what the changes will be because i mean it's been getting really great reviews so far i think a lot i've heard that it's even better than the original blade runner several times which i don't know if that's true because jared leto's in it and he ruins everything oh so, you never know that's a heavy accusation <laughs> i don't like him it's very annoying i did you feel like he blinded himself for the part apparently like he put on these like contacts that made him blind or something well the character's blind yeah, but he really wanted to be blind. Uh, he really so, wanted to very do that dedicated. method acting. Really wanted to do yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen any movies with Jared Leto uh, in them. Maybe I have. I feel like I've usually been fine, and then I saw him in Suicide Squad, and I was just oh, you so saw Suicide Squad. irritated the whole time. So I feel like yeah. ever since then, I'm like, I can't do this I anymore. was I was irritated by the first trailer, and I just oh kind of thought, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid this it one. It was so bad, and he was just the worst. <laughs> well, I think enough podcasts have probably already ragged on Suicide Probably, Squad, yeah, we so don't we can have move to go along. into it. Got okay. any movies to recommend that people um, would like if they liked Blade Runner? I mentioned Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets earlier. That one was very divisive. That was a kind of a another very visually ambitious sci-fi movie that came out this summer. It's oh. 2017, by the way. Isn't? Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Well, anyway. Just wanted to date the podcast. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> But yeah, that came out um, pretty recently, and a lot of people didn't like it, and they kind of thought it was just this kind of throwaway sci-fi thing, but I personally loved it. I thought it was a very fun um, adventure, very great to look at. Unlike this movie, I definitely wanted to explore all the worlds it presented, but I haven't really seen a blockbuster that was that visually exhilarating for a while, so that's definitely something to check out. Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days, that's another. Similarly, it kind of presents this future that's very kind of bleak, uh, rainy. And this one, people are able to purchase these like experiences that other people have so they can like buy these goggles and they can like live through someone's first date or something. It's this very weird movie about kind of different realities and a kind of a similar what it means to be human. So people are trying to live through all these different identities and kind of see what works for them. And it kind of makes up for this thriller eventually. That was a terrible explanation, <laughs> but it's really good. And then lastly, Minority Report. That's a Steven Spielberg movie with Tom Cruise, and that's also a Philip K. Dick adaptation. So if you dug this, definitely check that out. Very visually similar, has similarly weighty issues. Those are my recommendations for today. What are yours? I'm happy you went kind of thematic or author-related <laughs> similarities because I went uh, more for visual similarities. My recommendations, I already mentioned Ghost in the Shell, not the new one with Scarlett Johansson. I haven't seen um, that. Which I haven't seen, but I am referring to the original, <laughs> the 1995 anime. It's excellent, and it does feel a lot like Blade Runner. All the visuals are super similar. In the same vein, we're going to stick with the anime thing. I'd say also watch Akira. Oh. Also, another very, very visually similar striking anime. Really intense and kind of hard to decipher, just <laughs> like best. Blade Runner. Yeah, also incredibly long, um, but really good. Definitely watch it. If you like fast boys on motorcycles, <laughs> it's the movie for you. Um, and then because I'm a dork, Empire Strikes Back. If you want some Love more it. Harrison Ford in your life, and we were talking about matte paintings, that's a movie chock full of matte paintings uh, and miniatures and excitement. Harrison Ford gives a bit more of an emotional performance in this one. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> and then to stick to, we talked a little bit about how this movie was noir, neo-noir. I'm going to recommend a couple of noir movies. If you want to go super classic, I'm going to say watch the Maltese Falcon. Mm, 
Love it. That's I, I so wanted good. to say that just to, just to make you <laughs> smile. I know you love uh, those movies. I so. love it so much. And then I'm going to recommend a movie I know you don't like very much, Uh-oh. but it's definitely Drive, and it features our good boy, Ryan Gosling, and that's Drive. <laughs> uh, drive, if you want that good neon aesthetic, but also kind of that warm, comfortable feeling that's in Deckard's apartment, which makes me so cozy and happy, you should watch Drive. All right. That's great. <laughs> Love it. I'm going to make you watch it again, no, I think. No, <laughs> I don't want to. He doesn't want to. That's fine. I can't do it. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Is that anything else to say? Yeah, so oh. uh, we have an email address now. So oh, if you if you disagree fundamentally with our oh. opinions and you want to get angry and yell at us, uh, you can that write a strongly worded uh, piece of literature for us to read. You can send all of your mail or questions, or comments, or suggestions to us. You can send us emails to... Podcast at gmail.com. Sounds great. Just don't write anything that's going to make us cry. I mean, I might cry. Maybe Aiden's a little stronger than me. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. We will be recording many more fun podcasts for you. Yes. Hopefully soon. I'm Aiden Walker. And I'm Blake Peterson. See you next time. what drunk food is like in other places? My name is Dee Dee Madigan, host of the weekly podcast Home Plates, where I ask that question and many more. Each week, an international student joins me here in the studio to discuss their food culture. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday right here on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.